The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Are we ready to study the Bible? I'm so excited. We're going to be looking tonight, uh, finishing up our, our study on the offices of Christ. Uh, I don't remember uh, how far we got because it was last year after all. And so, I mean, it's just, you know, it's been a while. But uh, we were talking about the office of Christ, and then we're going to be looking at the uh, person and work of the Holy Spirit. So really an exciting time tonight as we continue in our study in uh, systematic theology. I'd like to begin on the outline uh, for uh, the person of Christ, the office of Christ on page 8. We were looking at the three offices um, of Christ, and what are the three offices? Anybody know what they are? What are the three offices? Thank you. Prophet, priest, and king. And those three offices were established in the Old Testament. We talked about that, how there were prophets and there were priests and there were kings. Something unique in the Old Testament uh, covenant, the Old Testament regulations, is that you could not have a king who would be a priest. All right. Melchizedek, of course, is the example and the pattern and picture of Christ, a priest king. But other than that, once the law of Moses came in, there was a great separation between the two. I think that was a way of of elevating and dignifying the honor of Christ. Christ alone could be our final, our new covenant, uh, great high priest. So we talked about Christ uh, as prophet. Uh, We talked about how he was a prophet. He spoke the word of God. He could say, thus says the Lord, and the things that he would say would be the word of God. But we also noticed that he was different than any other prophet that ever lived. He was recognized during his life to be a prophet, but he was more than a prophet. Uh, We see the authority of Christ's teaching, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, etc. This is not the way that a prophet usually speaks. Usually a prophet would say, thus says the Lord, and that would be his authority. Jesus just spoke. And you have heard that it was said, etc. But I say to you, I want to give a, a deeper and a, a more powerful interpretation of the laws against murder and adultery and all that. And he had the authority to do that because he was the word of God. Not merely that he spoke the word of God, he was the word of God. So he was a prophet. He spoke to us the truth of God. And we also see Christ uh, on page eight as priest. Christ is called our great high priest. And the book for the, the treatise on the high priestly ministry of Christ is the book of Hebrews. If you want to understand Christ as our high priest, the book of Hebrews is the place to go. It says in Hebrews 3, 1, therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. There, Jesus is clearly called a high priest. He is our great high priest, the high priest of our confession. It says also in Hebrews 4.14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. So Jesus is called our great high priest. Jesus offered a perfect sacrifice for sin. Uh, We know that the blood of bulls and goats was defective. Uh, It was powerless to cleanse from sin. Hebrews 9, 9 and 10 says this is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the consciences of the conscience of the worshiper. And then Hebrews 10, 4 says very plainly, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. 
This is one of the foundational principles that I use when I share the gospel using the sacrificial system. You might say, how in the world can you use the sacrificial system to share the gospel? My feeling is that Christians uh, should not neglect the animal sacrifices that God ordained and set up really from the very beginning. Uh, If you read between the lines in in Genesis 3, God covered Adam and Eve's nakedness with the skin of an animal. Uh, Many commentators believe this is the first animal sacrifice that there was. Clearly in Genesis 4, Abel offered God an animal sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. Cain did not. Cain was not accepted. His offering was not accepted, but Abel's was. From the very beginning, God ordained and established animal sacrifice. You remember how Noah took on the ark seven of all the clean animals. And as soon as he came off the ark, he offered a number of those clean animals to God as a fragrant burnt offering. And God smelled the aroma of the burnt offering and swore in his heart never again to bring such a flood on the earth. So there's that animal sacrifice right from the beginning. Abraham offered animal sacrifice. You remember all the way in Genesis 22, how, how Isaac said, here's wood and fire, but where's the sacrifice? He was used to his father offering animal sacrifices. It was a regular part of his religion. Uh, That was a very unique time in which Isaac was to be the sacrifice. At least that's what Abraham thought as he ascended the mountain. God himself will provide a sacrifice. But at any rate, animal sacrifice was established in the law of Moses. However, it was just a picture. It was just a picture of the work of Jesus Christ. To me, this is one of the great questions that modern Judaism has to answer. Where is the lamb? Where is the animal sacrifice? Where is the blood? It's all gone. And we could ask, by what authority has it been removed? That is a question that modern Judaism cannot answer. By what authority are they free no longer to offer the Mosaic sacrifices? They cannot offer them because the temple has been destroyed. Uh, We Christians, we have an answer to this in that in the new covenant, it's been fulfilled. It's been fulfilled and then providentially removed by the destruction of the temple. We're not looking for any more animal sacrifices. Christ offered the final sacrifice, the blood sacrifice. All of those animal sacrifices points ahead to Jesus, doesn't it? Because uh, that animal sacrificial system could not render the consciences of guilty sinners cleansed from defilement. They knew that the blood of animals and bulls and goats could not cleanse their conscience. Even David knew that in Psalm 51. He said, the blood of bulls and goats, I'd offer them. David had plenty of animals to offer, but God knew that that was not going to cleanse his conscience. No, all of it pointed ahead to Christ. And so Christ offered once for all time the final sacrifice, and that was himself. Hebrews 7:27. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day by day, uh, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. So Jesus offered himself. It's the greatest sacrifice that there ever has been. He is the only perfect and spotted, unspotted sacrifice. And he offered himself. Again, in Hebrews 9, 24 through 26, Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest offers the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own, then Christ would have, would have would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has offered, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin. Listen, by the sacrifice of himself. So that's a once for all sacrifice, never to be repeated. It is a perfect and complete sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself. So Jesus is a priest who offered a sacrifice, and that was himself. 
Uh, also, Jesus continually thereby brings us near to God. Old Testament priests uh, also represented the people in the presence of God. Remember the priest, the pontifex, he's a bridge builder uh, between a God and man. He's, he's a connecting point between God and man. To some degree, he stands with, with humans behind him, representing them to God. And to some degree, through his faithful teaching of the word, he stands representing God to man. Uh, that's what a priest does. That's what they did in the Old, Old Testament. Uh, Jesus represents us to God the Father. He presents us to God. Uh, Christ leads us continually into the very presence of God. Look at Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. It says, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This word enter is so significant, isn't it? You get the picture of the holy of holies and of entering in into a place where we would have no right to be, into a place where we would not be welcome were it not for the work of Christ. And so Jesus uses this entering language frequently in his teaching. For example, enter through the narrow gate. There's a sense of being on the outside and you need to enter. You need to go through a doorway. Into what? Well, ultimately into the very presence of God. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's a, uh, an entering into the presence of God. And what's so beautiful, uh, this, is, this is really uh, wonderfully stated. Take a minute and look in your Bibles. It's not on your sheet there, but in, in Romans 5, um, 1 and 2. Romans 5, 1 and 2 says, uh, Therefore, since we have been justified uh, through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 2, and it says, An access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Isn't that wonderful? The word access there in the NIV uh, is sometimes translated introduction. We have an introduction into the presence of God. We have, in effect, a welcome into God's very presence. Uh, in, in the book of Hebrews, it talks about a new and living way open for us into the very presence of God. And so it reminds me of a kind of high court language where you would have no right to go into the presence of the king or the queen if you didn't have someone who could introduce you and bring you into his presence. And so Jesus is our access. He's our introduction, it says in Romans 5 too, into this grace in which we now stand. And that standing in grace is so beautiful, isn't it? It's so beautiful. We need grace every moment. Do you feel it? Do you sense it in the Christian life? You just need God's grace all the time. Uh, you know, how many of you were sinless and pure today? If you were, I think I would like to inter in invite you to come and teach and the rest of us will listen. Because my feeling is, how can there be you know, we are so sinful. We do, not, uh, we do not live up to the calling that we receive. We're not up to Christ's standards. And therefore, at every moment while we're here in the flesh, we need a cleansing by grace. And the beautiful thing of Romans 5, 2 is it is available. We are, as it were, like in a hot shower of grace, constantly cleansed by the grace of God. And that is the grace that Christ has bought for us. But we have an access. We have an introduction into the very presence of God by Christ's priestly ministry. So he has brought us into the presence of God. He represents uh, us to God. Uh, top of page nine, it talks about how uh, on the outline, how uh, Jesus had um, at the moment of his death, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And that is the picture of this new and living way that's mentioned in Hebrews 10, 19 and following. Uh, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed 
with pure water. That is the central exhortation of the whole book of Hebrews. That right there, that's it. Uh, Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. You want to know what the whole book is about? That's what it's all about. Draw near to God and stay there forever. That's in effect what the book of Hebrews is saying. He's saying to these uh, uh, Jewish uh, professors of faith in Christ, those who have claimed to be Christians are making a profession of faith in Christ, don't go back to the old covenant. Uh, the, the way was shut off in the old covenant. You had no welcome into the presence of God. But now through the ministry of Christ, let us draw near to God. The old covenant, it was all about barriers. It was all about thus far and no further. You can come this close, but you can't come any closer. In the new covenant, we are commanded to come into the very presence of God. And what would stop you from doing it but a defiled and guilty conscience? That's the very thing I was talking about on Sunday morning. Psalm 32, the freedom and the blessedness and the happiness of forgiveness of sins. And Jesus is the one who paid the price. It is his priestly ministry that enables you and me to come into the very presence of God. I mean, think about that. When you stop and think about that, it's so incredible. Here we have these holy angels with six wings and with two wings, they're covering their faces. And into the presence of that God, we are welcome. How can it be? They've never committed any sin. There's never been the slightest motion of rebellion inside them. They've only ever done the will of God and yet they cover their faces. They have nothing to be ashamed of. They have no memory of sin, no history of sin, and yet they cover their faces. And into the presence of that God, we are welcome. How can it be? Do you get a sense that you and I undervalue the priestly ministry of Christ? We don't realize how valuable it is to God, that it could take sinners like us and make us welcome in the presence of God. Oh, the priestly ministry of Christ is of infinite value. God the Father doesn't undervalue it. He values it exactly what it's worth. It's worth infinite value to him. All right, so Jesus, uh, he has offered a sacrifice. He represents us to God. Uh, He represents God to us. And he continually prays for us. This is the way that a priest functions. One of the things a priest would do is pray for the people. Uh, You see that in Samuel's ministry when he said, far be it uh, uh, from me that I should sin against God by failing to pray for you. So that was just one of the important priestly ministries was intercession. And all of us take that ministry up to some degree. I'll talk about that at the end of this section of the study. Um, But no one prays like Jesus. No one prays like Jesus. Jesus is the perfect intercessor. And why is that? Because he always prays according to his father's will. And that is just one of the one of the greatest insights I've ever had concerning the priestly ministry of Christ, that Jesus always gets everything he asks for. Always. Because he has his father's ear. He he speaks his father's will. He doesn't pray amiss ever. He doesn't pray except according to the will of the father. And do you know what I think he's praying for continually? In my opinion, he's praying for our faith. Look look down at the bottom of page nine. Uh, This is what I think Christ is praying for. Uh, There, uh, Jesus says to Simon, uh, Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon that your faith may not fail. And after you have returned, strengthen your brothers. So Jesus, our great high priest, carries on, it says in Hebrews 7, a continual prayer ministry. Look at Hebrews 7, right there in the middle of the sheet, 24 and 25, because Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood and therefore he is able to save completely. Another translation gives save to the uttermost. 
right to the end. Does that not give you a definite picture of salvation as a journey? He is able to finish the saving work, get it done right to the end. None of us are completely saved, not one of us. We're not completely finally saved. And so therefore, we need to continually be being saved. And Jesus is praying about that. He is able to save to the uttermost or able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. The way he keeps saving me, according to that verse, is how? How does Jesus keep saving me and you? How does he do it? He intercedes for us. He prays for us. That's how the saving work gets finished. I I just think, I know that I underestimate prayer. Uh, In in Jesus' way of thinking, the way that we are going to finally be saved is if he prays to the Father and the Father does it. And that's a beautiful thing. And so Jesus is there at the right hand of God the Father and is interceding for us. Look what it says in Romans 8.34. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. He's praying continually for us. Have you ever wondered how Jesus could pray for all 150 million Christians there are, however many there are in the world? I have no idea how many there are constantly for all of us in a detailed way. Do you ever wonder about that? I do. I don't understand how that can possibly be. I mean, the mental interconnect between the Father and the Son and all the information that's passing from one infinite mind to the next, I can't understand it. But I know this. The Scripture says it's going on. And I believe the point of it all is that my faith will not fail that my faith will not fail and neither will yours. And you say, wow, what an interesting thing to pray for. I thought it was once saved, always saved. That is really kind of a misnomer. It bothers me. Rather, what I want to say is once God has revealed and he has clearly said or committed himself to saving an individual, you're justified, you will be saved to the uttermost and nothing can stop it. But it's such a process. It's not done yet. And that's why Jesus is praying for me right now and for you. Do you need prayer? Do you stand in the need of prayer? It's good to have brothers and sisters praying for you. It's better to have Jesus praying for you. And he's never going to stop praying for you until you're done. Isn't that wonderful? So he's praying that your faith will not fail. And let me ask you a question. Will it? Will your faith fail? If Jesus is interceding for you at the right hand of God, and if he always gets what he asks for because he always prays according to the will of God, uh, let's make it very specific. Was it possible for Simon Peter's faith to fail that night? Was it? not possible. And why not? Because God the Father exerted his omnipotence to this issue that Simon Peter's faith would not fail. And he did it as a response to his son's prayer. The son asked the father concerning it. The father granted it. And he gave a sovereign, omnipotent commitment to uphold Simon Peter's faith continually. Now, what if Simon Peter had, what if his faith had failed? I don't know what to say. He'd have gone to hell, I guess is the right way to say it. Apparently, the faith needs to continue on or else he wouldn't sustain it. But it wouldn't happen because the son and the father would not let it happen. And so, therefore, he continually intercedes and he's constantly praying for you and me that no matter what temptation the devil throws at us, no matter what life circumstances, no matter how down you may feel, no matter how much sin you feel like you've committed, uh, by the way, your sense of how much sin you've committed is less than the actual amount of sin that you've committed. All right. No matter how much you sense or feel that 
Maybe you're up to 80% of how much you really have committed today. Uh, That's a real acute sense of how much you've sinned. And you feel so guilty. Friends, Jesus, if he's praying for you at the right hand of God, your faith will never fail. And it will continue right through to the end until, until you're in the very presence of God. That is the priestly ministry of Christ. That's the ongoing priestly ministry. And what is he pleading? He's basically pleading the value of his blood shed on your behalf. That his blood is sufficient to cleanse, to cover, like we said in Psalm 32, all of your sins. So that's what he's praying for for you. Ongoing faith needed. Uh, Romans 11 says, you will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. We covered all that. Why we be afraid, how all that works. That was in a sermon. Listen to it. But my point is we must continue to stand by faith. And we will. Because Jesus is uh, at the right hand of God interceding for us. That's the priestly ministry of Christ. Finally, Christ as king. Christ is prophet. He is priest. He is also king. Christ was born king of the Jews, as we see in Matthew uh, chapter 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus was the son of David. He had a legitimate claim to the throne of David, as we I said on December 18th when I was preaching about Joseph. Joseph, uh, Jesus' legal father, was called the son of David by the angel, and jo- thus Jesus derives his right to rule through this connection. The angel said to Joseph, do not be afraid uh, to take Mary home as, as your wife. He calls him Joseph's son of David. The Magi came in, in chapter 2 of Matthew and says, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. And so here's this one, this Magi, um, the Magi, sorry, that are coming to worship or, or to honor the king of the Jews. The prophecy of Micah cited by the chief priests and the teachers of the law established Christ as the king. In uh, Matthew 2, 6, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. So that's the prophecy ascribed to to Christ. He is the ruler coming out of Bethlehem. He is the uh, shoot from the stump of Jesse. He is the king. Uh, Christ rejected human ideas of kingship. He claimed a higher kingdom. In John 6, Uh, After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew to a mountain by himself. Now, why did he do that? Why did Jesus? I mean, they want to come and make him king by force. Wasn't he the king? Why did he shun that? Why did he withdraw and hide himself in a mountain? Why do you think? Okay, it wasn't his time. That's one good good reason. He had he had some things to do. Go to go to the cross. Why else? What are your thoughts? It wasn't that kind of a king. That's right. What what kind of king were the people thinking of at that point? Just an earthly king uh, in their own pattern, their own way. They had no idea any more than Pilate. When Pilate said, "You are a king," then he said, "You are right in saying I am a king." In fact, for this reason, I was born and for this, I entered the world. That's the I came into the world to be a king. But Pilate didn't he didn't know what kind of a king he didn't understand. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my subjects would have fought with a sword to protect my being arrested by the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is from another place. So Jesus definitely was a king, but it was just at a different level. And he was not going to be made king by force. And that's a very profound thing. He was not, he is not made king by force. It's not by the sword that Jesus' kingdom advances. The crusaders were very greatly mistaken on this. 
It is not by the sword that the kingdom advances. That's not how it's going to happen. No, but by the power of God. It says very plainly in Isaiah 9, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his kingdom and of peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Listen, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It's not the sword that's going to give Jesus his throne, but the zeal of God the Father. Sit at my right hand while I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Let me do it. And so the Father gets the kingdom for him. Remember how Jesus introduced one of his parables. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who went away to gain a kingdom for himself. He goes away to get a kingdom. And that's about what Jesus has done. He has gone away from the earth to gain a kingdom for himself. When he returns, he'll have his kingdom. In the meantime, it is the by the power of the Spirit and the determination and the zeal of the Father, Jesus' kingdom is advancing in the world. He's getting his kingdom, isn't it? It's taken 2,000 years and it's not finished yet, but he's getting his kingdom. And when he comes back, he will be King of kings and Lord of lords. I probably already shared all of the scriptures I have in mind to share here. I've probably gone over them all. I don't know, but let's go through it in an orderly fashion. Yes, we've done, my kingdom is not of this world. I did that one. Christ accepted worship as king. Remember this, when he entered into Jerusalem, they, uh, he's riding on a donkey, and that's such a symbol of the coming Messiah, the coming king. And uh, it says, say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt full of the donkey. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and Hosanna in the highest. They are proclaiming him king. You remember how uh, the chief priest wanted them to, to stop saying this. This was... Uh, this was revolutionary or blasphemous, something like that. And so it says, when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. Psalm 8. Jesus accepted the worship as king. He was king. However, the people did not understand what kind of king he was and he had to go to the cross. He had to shed his blood that we might have eternal life. Christ claimed to be king. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. He says in Matthew 12, 28, but if I drive out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's here. Now, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, yes, it is as you say. He definitely claimed to be king, yes. Well, let me tell you what a what a um, what one commentator I read about this said. This is very interesting. They said, well, you know, Matthew uh, went literalistic on a certain translation and had a certain problem from the Old Testament from Zechariah, and so he errantly put that Jesus rode on both a donkey and a colt. And we know that this is impossible. There's no way Jesus could have ridden, ridden on both a donkey and a colt. I think the arrogance of 20th century commentators who weren't even there to contradict an eyewitness who was. 
Who are we to come along and say he didn't ride both the donkey and a colt, one after the other? I don't know. It says he did. And for me, I just accept that he did. You know, but they say, well, Matthew didn't translate it right. Let me, my, with my 20th century wisdom and insight, tell you, Matthew, how to translate Zechariah, since you seem to have had a problem with it. It's unbelievable. So uh, the best I can make of it is that he did ride both, maybe one after the other. Or maybe he somehow he wrote them at the same time. I don't want to picture that, but uh, maybe he did. They're trying their best. And I appreciate the spirit behind it. I don't really know. But I think it is a worthy effort to try to accept the scripture as it's written and not try to twist it. So that's a good question. Any other questions right now about Christ's claim to be king? Okay, Christ demanded submission to his kingly reign. Probably the clearest example of this is in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, where Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now you might ask, what in the world does that passage have to do with submitting to Christ's kingly reign? Well, you tell me. What does it have to do with submitting to Christ's kingly reign? Even what? in the Old Testament, uh, taking the yoke means come under submission. That's right. Kingly rule. Do a word study sometimes on, sometime on the word yoke, mm-hmm. especially in the Old Testament. Look in the book of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah walked around with a yoke that symbolized submission to Nebuchadnezzar. And basically, he was representing that God had handed all of those countries over to the Babylonians, over to King Nebuchadnezzar, including Judah and Jerusalem. And one of the false prophets snatched the yoke off of Jeremiah's neck and broke it, saying, in this way, God will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. And (laughs) Jeremiah looked at him and said, you've broken a wooden uh, yoke. God will give you an iron yoke in its place. And you're not going to break that one. And uh, he... Uh, the false prophet said to him, tell me where the spirit went from you when he went from, from you to me, etc., something like that. And he said, you'll know when you go hide in an inner room. And it's just typical prophetic encounter there. He said, when, when you find yourself sniveling in some inner room somewhere, you'll remember my words and then you'll know that God is telling the truth. You're going to submit to the yoke of the king of Babylon. Well, again and again in the Old Testament, this yoke is a picture of kingly authority. Well, if that's true, then what is Jesus saying here in Matthew 11, 28 through 30? What is he commanding us to do? Submit to, him. Submit to his kingly reign. And if you do, what will you find? Easy and his light. yoke is easy. His burden is right, light. And you will find rest at last for your souls. You know what causes all the trouble in your life and mine? Rebellion against God's kingly authority. Is it not? Is that not the source of all the trouble there is in the world? Is rebellion against God's kingly authority. Is God thereby going to give up his throne? Tired of reigning and ruling over such rebellious... No, he's not going to give up his throne. He is king. He will be king. What he is doing so beautifully is he's winning us back into the universe that really is. Not the deceptive universe the devil tricks us into saying that there is. Namely, that you don't need to submit to the kingly authority. That's a deception. That's the lie. You can be free. You can do what you want. What is he doing? He's selling you bondage. Let me be your king. And my yoke is not easy. My burden is not light. And you'll find yourself in the lake of fire in the end. That's where he's heading. All right. But we were born to serve. That's one of the most humbling but most ins- you know, powerful insights you can ever get. We were born to serve. And we will serve. 
There is no escaping it. We will serve sin and the devil or we will serve Christ. There is no other place. There's no other option. Those that think they are not serving Christ are serving the devil. They're really serving sin and the flesh and the devil. And they will find out in the end that their neck was under a yoke all along. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and you'll find that it's light and easy and you'll find rest for your souls. But he is demanding submission to his kingly authority. That's why I just cannot understand this lordship salvation thing where you can accept Jesus as savior, but not as Lord. You can actually go a long time after accepting Jesus as Savior. And then eventually, when you finally get some good teaching or something finally clicks in place in your life, you'll finally accept him also as Lord. Friends, that is not salvation. We're being saved from rebellion against his kingly authority. That's what sin is. So how can it be a salvation in which we do not submit to his kingly reign? Landis. Every time the the two terms appear together, uh, Lord and Savior, it's always Lord first. Mm -hmm. That's right. Is, is come to me a command or it's often presented as a request. Please come to me. Or yeah. is it a command? Well, here's the thing. It's interesting. I was, I was talking once to somebody about the invitation system. And I was also talking about Henry Blackaby's book. Uh, it's a wonderful book called uh, Experiencing God. And it talks about how God invites us to join us in his work. So I was talking about God's invitations. Okay, are there any of God's invitations that are not commands? Stop and think about it. What is an invitation? Isn't it? When you th- think of an invitation, uh, it would, it, other than facetious or sarcastic uses, it's, not, it's just something good, right? An invitation to a party, an invitation to the inaugural ball, an invitation to something you'd like to go to, right? It's an invitation to something wonderful, right? Aren't all God's commands invitations? Aren't they? All right, let's turn it around. Are all of God's invitations commands? Oh, yeah, they are. And Jesus is giving both an invitation and a command here. Uh, He is commanding us to submit to his kingly reign. And uh, we can defy and break that command. We can, just like we can break God's commands across the board. But we do so to the peril of our soul. So uh, conversely, is it an invitation? Yes, you'll find rest for your soul. What a delightful invitation that is. It's a beautiful thing. They're one and the same. All of God's invitations are commands and all of his commands are invitation. So he is giving a command here and we must obey it. Okay. And then um, uh, Luke 19, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So I guess I already referred to this earlier. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas, etc. Um It says, put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to be our king. (laughs) This is one of Jesus' parables. He was made king, however. (laughs) (laughs) I tell you what, I mean, you just have to study the scripture to see these incredible moments. Despite all of that rebellion, he was made king, however. Uh, the, The record of that is in Revelation 19. We'll get there in a minute. When he returns and on his robe is written, King of kings and Lord of lords, whether you like it or not. He was made king, however. And he comes back and he says, but those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Oh, my goodness. And you think, how does that line up with the Jesus we know? He said it. And and he's not just going to kill them. He's going to kill them with an eternal death. It says in Revelation, the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. 
And if that doesn't compute with the way you think of Jesus or if it's difficult to fathom, I understand that. It's hard for me to fathom it too. But everything is infinitely more than he ever thought it was. Everything's more important. Sin is more more significant. Jesus' blood is worth so much more than he ever thought it was. And so also is the, is the price of rebellion against Christ's kingly authority. Um, Christ was established as king after his resurrection. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Ephesians 1 uh, says that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. What is that talking about? infinite a position of infinite power and authority he is far above all rule and authority that's jesus infinitely above he is king and then finally christ's kingly reign will be established at his return uh, revelation eleven fifteen. the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our lord and of his christ and he will reign forever and ever hallelujah hallelujah handel goes on and on all right this is right from revelation eleven fifteen. this is the hallelujah chorus does it, does it sound familiar i mean maybe some of you know it some of you don't but it's right from revelation 15 11 15 the kingdom is christ and then again revelation 19 i saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true with justice he judges and makes war his eyes are like blazing fire on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. What an interesting verse that is. You know, Jesus has a name that only he knows. No one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's incredible, isn't it? That's a picture of Jesus at his second coming. Now, the final thing that Grudem does in this chapter is to talk about our role as prophets, priests, and king. All right? Jesus is the prophet, the priest, the king. But we have parallel roles to play now in this world. And there are scriptures that support this concept. Adam was, to some degree, a prophet, a priest, and a king before the fall. Adam was a prophet because he had true knowledge of God and spoke it truly. He was a priest in offering freely prayer and praise to God. No sacrifice for sins needed at that point. And Adam had, uh, Adam, sorry, was a king in that authority was given him along with Eve to rule over the earth and to subdue it. So he was uh, the early picture of this prophet, priest, and king. Sin corrupted all these roles for humanity, ruined each one of them. In some sense, we retained them, but not perfectly. Christ perfectly fulfilled them as we have seen. And Christians subordinately fulfill them in his name. We are prophets of the gospel, speaking the very words of God around the world. It says in 1 Peter 4.11, listen to this, if anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. I mean, definitely in the New Testament, there are prophets and prophetesses. Now, there were people who spoke and said, thus says the Lord, and they spoke and the word of God came out. That is true. Whether there are still such today is debatable. 
but definitely there were such back then. But even so, with the New Testament and with the command to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, we have a prophetic role to play in this world. Secondly, we are priests as Peter declared. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. It says in another place in Hebrews, let us offer the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. So there is a, a sacrifice of praise that we offer up, thanksgiving and praise. We are uh, priests in that respect, offering up the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. And then we are also kings again under Christ. Revelation 3.21, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. What a picture that is, that, that we would actually have the right to reign with Christ. It says that in Revelation 22, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the glory of God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Isn't that incredible? They will reign. Who will reign? Well, the saints, the the saved ones will reign forever and ever. Under him, of course, all authority is his, but they will reign. And that gave me to some degree I don't know if this is actually a good interpretation, but I think it may be. If you go back on page 12, a slightly new way of looking at Revelation 19. Because there it is written on his thigh, king of what? Kings and Lord of Lords. He's that forever, eternally. He's the king and we are kings under him, reigning, ruling. But he is the king of kings. He has that final authority. So we will reign forever and ever in heaven, uh, in Christ, but he will be the king over all of us, the king of kings. Prophet, priest, and king, uh, that is Christ. Any questions about the offices of Christ? Before in 15 minutes we cover the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Any any questions? Prophet, priest, and king, anything at all? Seriously, because we're not going to finish the Holy Spirit anyway, so it's all right. Okay, well, let's go. The work of the Holy Spirit. Do you all have one of these outlines? Yes? Okay. Are, there, are they out at the back? Yeah? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, oh, yes. Sorry. Go ahead. I don't remember us doing any parallels between him and Melchizedek. Yeah. Did we cover that? I didn't. I covered it when I was preaching through Hebrews on Sunday evening. I mentioned it, that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, meaning the office of priest and king are perfectly... Um, in, united, perfectly uh, put together. So that's, a, that's a, good, a good theme that could be developed. The whole treatise on Melchizedek is in um, uh, Hebrews, um, was it 7? I think it is. Yeah, that, that's what it is. Because he, he wants to talk about Melchizedek in chapter, chapter 4, and he says, you know, I want to talk about it, but you're immature. Or chapter 5. He says, you know, I, I have much to say on this topic, but I can't because you're slow to learn. And then he goes into this whole thing in Hebrews 6, about falling away and that whole that whole issue. Um, and then he says, okay, now let's get to it. And that's in Hebrews 7. So if you want to know about the whole issue of Jesus and Melchizedek, Hebrews 7 is the chapter to look at. So good question. But Jesus is a king uh, priest in, in the order of Melchizedek. 
Okay, let's look at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is Grudem's chapter 30, but much of the stuff in your outline comes from my Ryrie Study Bible. Somebody uh, said to me after uh, I preached in uh, Romans 11 the last time about all Israel be saved, that I'm more dispensational than they are. So um, I don't consider myself a dispensationalist, okay? I have a Ryrie Study Bible, but I am not personally a dispensationalist. It just at the back, it has an incredible outline of systematic theology and a great section on the Holy Spirit. And so I lifted that out and inserted it. What you're about to hear is not from Grudem, but from Charles Ryrie's study notes, okay? Uh, but we'll get back to Grudem, God willing, next time. But uh, we're going to look at the person of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? Um, and then we'll look uh, next week, God willing, at his works. And we're not even going to finish the person of the Holy Spirit. When we start talking about the Holy Spirit, the first issue, uh, like the issue of Christ is always the deity of Christ. We don't question the humanity. Was he a historical personage? Although some do question that as well. Um, but the, the real issue with Jesus is, was he truly divine? The deity of Christ, that's the stumbling block. That's the dividing point. With the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the issue there is the personality of the Spirit. Uh, the Jews, if you, if you talk to them, they would not deny the idea of the Spirit of God, but what they would say is that it is in no way separate from God and that there's not an independent person there, a personality, because then they would be Trinitarian, wouldn't they? That would head toward the doctrine of the Trinity. So the issue is, is the Holy Spirit a person? Some say uh, he's a God force or a God consciousness, something like that. Uh, the United Pentecostal Church um, uh, teaches what we call modalism on the Trinity. And they believe that there is one God who at different eras in history has revealed himself differently. God the Father sometime, God the Son sometimes, and God the Holy Spirit sometimes. Of course, what's the problem with that? It is a heresy, by the way. What, what is the problem with that? Yeah, Jesus praying. That's that's it. Who was Jesus talking to? And even scarier, who answered him? You know, I mean, that's that's a real problem when you get into this issue of modalism. You know, I want to know who answered Jesus. That's the one that scares me. All right. Um, but at any rate, I believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. And therefore, I believe in the personality of the Holy Spirit. He is a person of the Trinity. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the doctrine of the Trinity now, but that is the issue now. What we need to do is, can we support the idea of the Holy Spirit being a person? Well, you might ask, you know, what is a person? And, uh, you know, what, what ideas would come to your mind when you think of a person? Well, I think what we're going to do is, is just look at the, some of the proofs of the personality of the Spirit, and then you'll understand. Persons have intelligence. Intelligence is connected to personality, isn't it? Rocks, stones, rivers, even animals, not counting your dog, of course. I mean, I'm sure your dog's a person to you. Not to me, but to you, maybe a person. See, there's intelligence there. Set up, boy, you know, or go fetch. See, he's smart, that kind of thing. But no, I, I look on intelligence being connected to personality. If the spirit can be shown to be intelligent, he's a person, and he is. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11 says this. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. It's a beautiful thing. The idea is that the Holy Spirit searches out the mind of God. And in that context, 1 Corinthians 2, reveals to us those things that he finds. It's amazing. The Spirit moving through the mind of God and bringing out what he finds there. 
the, the intelligence of the Spirit. Secondly, and I think very importantly, he has feelings. Persons have feelings. Persons have intelligence. Persons also have feelings, don't they? So the, the feelings of the... Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. When you think of grief, you think of a funeral, perhaps. You think of a tragedy. Grief is a very powerful and emotional word. But we should understand. We should understand. We as people, as persons, we are created in the image of God. Therefore, our emotions are a dim and because of sin, imperfect reflection of God's emotional nature. Is God an emotional being? Yes, he's an emotional being. Does God have emotions? Yes, he does. Jesus displays emotions. God the Father has emotions and, friends, the Holy Spirit has emotions. Do you know what this verse teaches me? It teaches me that the Holy Spirit has a feeling of grief when we sin. Isn't that incredible? And what I've noticed before is as we go along in time, when we sin, the Holy Spirit immediately feels the grief. It takes us a while to join him in the feeling. Have you ever noticed that? There's a little bit of a lag time. And it's one of the Spirit's ministries to get you down to where he is about what you did. He wants you to feel what he felt about that sin. How does he do that? How does the Spirit change your emotional state so that you start being miserable like you should about sin? (laughs) How does he do that? You may be saying, I don't know that he does. But remember what it says in James 4. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. There's a command to do it, right? And I think it's the spirit that does it in us. How does he do it? How does he change our false and ridiculous joy into something more realistic after we've sinned? Okay. Through scripture, through the revelation, uh, the spirit speaking scripture to us, we come to realize what? that what we have done is sin, that it's evil. It's not a minor deal. And we start to feel something about it, don't we? We start to respond. Just like David did in Psalm 32, it starts to hurt. We start to be sad. We start to grieve. And once we in the Spirit finally now, after that lag time, finally are in agreement, then what does the Spirit start to do? He starts to comfort us and to bring us out of it and back to a place of joy. And remember that joy is one of the fruit of the Spirit, right? But that's just the ministry of the Spirit. All of that to say the Spirit's a person. He has emotional reactions to our sin. You know what that makes me want to do? Not sin. I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Isn't that what Paul's saying in Ephesians 4? Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Thirdly, persons have a will. They make decisions. They make determinations, right? Uh, And we see that in the issue of the giving of, of spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says in verse 11, all these gifts, there are different gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12, all these gifts are the work of one and the same Spirit and He gives them to each one just as He wills, as He determines. Isn't that a marvelous thing? To think of the Spirit of God determining what spiritual gift you'll get. What's so amazing to me about that is that in Ephesians 4, it says that Jesus is the one who decides what spiritual gifts we get. There it says... That, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ measured it out, according to the metron of Christ, the measurement of Christ. So Christ measures it out, but here it says it's according to the, the Spirit, as the Spirit determines. Does that trouble you? 
No, it shouldn't. It shows the perfect unity of the Trinity. They are perfectly working together. There's an overlap and and a total unity to what the Spirit is doing and what Jesus is doing. There's total unity. But it is Jesus who gives you your gifts and it is the Holy Spirit who does it as he determines. So you get your gifts. All right, that's very strong evidence of the personality of the Spirit. He has intelligence. He has emotions and he makes determinations. He has a will. He is a person, the person of the Spirit. Also, it's proved by his works. He teaches. It says in John 14, 26, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. That's personal work, isn't it? Teaching is done by persons. So the Holy Spirit teaches and he reminds. And by the way, so much of teaching is reminding, isn't it? I mean, it's not so much that that you're hearing things you've never heard or radical things that are going to rock you. I mean, that's... That's trouble, friends. I mean, we're not looking for whole new doctrines here. We're looking rather to be reminded of what we know. And yes, there may be some new insights and some some new thoughts, etc., but not not whole new categories of truth and all that. The Holy Spirit has already taught you well, just as the Scripture says, they will all be taught by God. So the Spirit has already taught you. He's a teacher. He also guides, says in Romans 8, this is the number one way that the Holy Spirit guides. As a matter of fact, if he's not guiding you like this, you are not a child of God. What guidance am I referring to there? It is the matter of putting sin to death. It is what he guides every Christian to do. Put sin to death. Look what it says. It says, for you, if you live according to the sinful nature, according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. In that context, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God if not to be actively putting sin to death by the power of the Spirit? That's what it means to be a son of God, a child of God, that you are in the power of the Spirit putting sin to death. That's what he leads you to do. That's why he's called the Holy Spirit. He's in the business of making us holy. Or uh, a more practical guidance, I like this, <laughs> Acts 16, 6 and 7. One of them is guidance in sanctification. The other one is guidance in ministry. I like this. It says, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from doing that. It says, when they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. That's a very strong guidance. Why was the Spirit guiding them like that? Actually, it seems like he's prohibiting them from preaching there. Why? Well, you have to know Acts 16 to know why. He wanted them to go west. He wanted them to go into Greece. He wanted them to go over to Macedonia. He had a work to do in Philippi and in Thessalonica and in Berea and down to Athens and Corinth, hence many of the books of the New Testament. That's what the Spirit had in mind. He had the whole thing figured out. So he blocked them in so that they couldn't go anywhere until Paul had his vision of the man of Macedonia. Come over and help us. The Spirit blocked them. The Spirit guides the church in personal holiness and in ministry to the ends of the earth. So the Spirit is a guide. He also commissions in uh, Acts 13, uh, verse 2 through 4, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said... Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. By the way, that's one of the few quotations you can ascribe to the Holy Spirit in the Bible. You know, moved by the Spirit, he's, uh, you know, Elizabeth said such and such. You get that a lot. But this is one of the few times you get the Holy Spirit said and then such and such. That's very unusual. Acts 13. 
the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then um, it says in uh, verse 3, after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. So the Holy Spirit commissions Paul and Barnabas for the first missionary journey, sends them off. I think it's beautiful, by the way, the partnership between the church and the Spirit. Isn't that, isn't that so beautiful? Look at verse 3. It says, they, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, verse 4, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. You see that? The church, is, has, the church has placed their hands and sent them off, but it really is the Spirit that sent them, right? And you see the beautiful partnership there between the two. Um, and by the way, you see the same thing, I think, in uh, John 15, where he says, the, uh, well, I think it's... Um, oh, look, look at page three, uh, verse seven. He speaks. See, when the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the father, he will testify about me and you also must testify. Isn't that beautiful? The spirit will testify and you also must testify. You get the same thing at the end of the book of Revelation. The spirit and the bride say, come. Isn't that beautiful? Who's the bride? The bride is the church. We are the bride. Jesus, the bridegroom. But we are the bride. And how does the bride say come? Come to Christ, meaning. How does the bride say come? Through evangelism, right? Through witnessing. The spirit and the bride say come. Isn't that powerful? So you get just the beautiful partnership of human beings with the Holy Spirit. But it was the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit guides, he directs, he speaks, he convicts, he intercedes, he restrains evil. He does all of these things. These are personal works. All right, page three. This is also proved by what is ascribed to them. He can be obeyed. All right. Uh, I like this in Acts 10. While, the, while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I've sent them. Also another quotation directly ascribed to the Spirit. Again, you're going to find them in the book of Acts. It's just amazing how powerful uh, the Holy Spirit is in the book of Acts and how clearly we see him doing all kinds of interesting and powerful things. Peter went down and said to them, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? So the Spirit told him to do something and he was obeyed. Uh, the Spirit can also be lied to, right? You know the story of Ananias and Sapphira, how they sold a piece of property and kept back part of the money for themselves and brought the rest of the money, put it at the apostles' feet and told them, hey, this is what we got for the land. That was a big mistake. When P Peter said, how could you agree to test the Spirit of God? You have not lied to men, but to God. A uh, very clear statement of the deity of the Holy Spirit. But uh, the Holy Spirit can be lied to. You can't lie to an impersonal force. You can only lie to persons. The Holy Spirit is a person. He can be lied to. He can be resisted. You stiff-necked people, said Stephen, with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. He can be revered as David revered him in Psalm 51. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. He can be blasphemed. And Jesus said, I tell you that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. He can be grieved. We already covered that one. He can be outraged. ESV translates Hebrews 10.29 this way. How much, more worse, uh, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Spirit of God 
has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Wow, that's very, very strong language. And James 4, 5, he can envy and be jealous. It's a very interesting verse. Or do you think that the scripture says without reason that the spirit that he caused to live in us envies intensely? Well, what would what would make the spirit jealous? Think about it. What would make the spirit jealous? Sin. sin. How, Landis, how does sin make the spirit jealous? Well, he's, he's God, and, and God is always grieved when his commands aren't carried out. You know, if there's any infraction you know, of his word. Right. And you know in the Old Testament, there's that whole image of marriage between Israel and the, and the, the bride. I mean, the bride is Israel and, and God. So there's this marriage thing. In Jeremiah 2, it says, remember, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you followed me in the desert. As a bride. There's that bride and bridegroom feel with God being the bridegroom and Israel being the bride. And so how many times does he use jealousy as, you know, that God's name is jealous, it says in one place. He's a jealous God, it says in another place. I remember a, um, a Jewish lady who was the uh, the local church, uh, local newspapers, religion writer and editor. By the way, local newspaper, religion writer and editors are interesting people. <laughs> they really are interesting people. All right. Um, but anyway, we had an interesting discussion. She said, I think we've we've always, you know, we we Jewish people and Christians have always misunderstood that whole thing about God's jealousy. I think it was just a, a typographical error. God is a zealous God. Not a jealous God. Well, I thought this is this is really shocking that this woman. The problem's a Hebrew issue. It's not an English typographical error problem between Z and J. That's not the issue. But I, I actually decided to go with it. I said, "What do you think he's zealous for? What what is he zealous for? I think he's zealous for the relationship. He's zealous for the glory of his own name and for the privileges of his position." That makes him kind of jealous, don't you think? All right? Just like any good husband, he's jealous if he sees his wife in the arms of another man. And so what is it that makes the spirit inside of us jealous? It says in James 4 what it is. Friendship with the world. That makes him jealous. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Makes him jealous. And so the spirit he caused to live in us is jealous. A person alone. It's a person that can be jealous. And the one final thing I'll bring, and then we'll be done tonight. It's proved by unusual grammar. Now, this is a specialist insight, but I think it's worth relating. It has to do with how the Greek uses a pronoun to speak of the Holy Spirit. The word spirit, pneumos, is uh, neuter. It's a a neuter noun. It's a neuter thing. Uh, That language has masculine nouns, feminine nouns, and neuter nouns. All right? What's interesting is the word for spirit should be neuter, but the pronouns used in various places are masculine pronouns. John intentionally breaks uh, good Greek grammar, and he does it for theological purposes. A good example would be in John 16, 13, and 14. When he, ekenos, that one is literally how you would translate it. When he, that's nominative masculine singular, it's masculine. When he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Usually we would say it, right? Spirit is it. But no, it's, he's a he, all right? He's a person. And that's, that's exactly what the Greek grammar does with it. Okay, what have we looked at tonight? We have looked at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and we have found that the Spirit is a person. How does this apply to your life? Well, at numerous points tonight, I think we have had a strong motivation toward personal holiness, a strong motivation to put sin to death, to not make the Spirit inside us grieve, to not make him jealous. 
to know that if we do sin, we have a high priest who intercedes for us. He prays for us. He covers our sin with his blood. But yet it is the spirit that leads us as children of God to put sin to death. To me, that's that application. Stand firm in the day of temptation and don't yield to sin. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we've had tonight to study your word, uh, to look at these three offices, um, prophet, priest, and king concerning Christ and the glories of Christ that we see in each of those offices perfected in him, a perfect prophet, a perfect priest, a perfect king. We thank you for that. Uh, We thank you also for the beginning look at the person of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that he indwells us. We thank you that he lives in us. We thank you that he convicts us of sin, that he leads us and guides us. Father, I pray that we would be filled with him now, that his spirit would fill us, and that we would be moved and directed by his activity in us. I pray that we would be faithful witnesses, as it says, the spirit and the bride say, come. Or when the counselor comes, he will testify, and you also must testify. Help us to be faithful in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.